I know. Okay, I know. You've been wondering, where has the podcast been? Because you're confused and concerned and you don't exactly know what's going on. And you'd like to get a better idea. And so you've been wondering, where is Dave to make sense of this for me? Where is the former Jew? Actually, wait, not Dave. This is an anonymous podcast, remember? Where could he be? This former Jew who accepts Christ. Where, could, where is he to explain the situation, to give me a better understanding? Maybe, maybe you're feeling scared or angry or bloodthirsty. You're probably, you probably... If you're bloodthirsty, you probably don't listen to this. Regardless, I got some answers for you. I'm a little tired today. I'm going to try to bring it. I'm going to try to, you know, get myself going here. And I got a stiff neck. It's really annoying me. Don't you fucking hate that? What we're going to start by doing is um, I'm just going to give you a basic, like, geopolitics lesson. That's how we're going to start And then I have a clip that I'm going to play for you, maybe a few others. We're going to look at Laura Loomer as being like a prime example of a bloodthirsty Jew and kind of learn from, you know, some of her mistakes and her um, ethnic hatred and anger. And, uh, And then also I have a clip from, I guess he's the former president of Israel. And some of the comments that he's been making, and we're going to talk about victim consciousness and how, you know, a lot of these people can't even help it. It's like almost genetic and like the inability for, for, or, or the seeming uh, necessity for Jews to lie. We're going to talk about that, um, because, oh man, I made some discoveries. But let's start with just some basic geopolitics because I know this stuff really well. And you have to see it in a certain way or you're not going to get it. That was a sip of water I was just taking. I'm also a little under the weather. I'm a real mess, but but you got to hear this stuff, okay? <coughs> so... Let's just start with basic geopolitics. Um, And we're going to explain, I'm going to explain to you something that I've been seeing a lot and that I made a tweet about, which was one of my, uh, my best arguments. And it's obvious, okay? A lot of these things that I'm saying are very obvious and uh, objective, objectively true. So first of all, Let's just start with this, and then we can kind of branch out from here, but I've seen a lot of people making the, using the talking point that's like, uh, Israel has a right to exist. You see this a lot. Israel has a right to exist. And obviously, in the, in our discourse, especially with like all the libertarian influencers and things like that. But you see it with trans talking points too. People don't really seem to understand rights and like they kind of just extend that word wherever they want to. And 
it's not applicable. It's only applicable to individuals. This is an important thing about rights. You know, if you're going to talk about it seriously, it's not applicable to nation states. That's not how it works. Okay. And then we're going to also talk about international law because it's kind of a, it's not real. It's a fictional thing. And we can even um, play devil's advocate and we can make arguments even, um, we can make legitimate arguments on behalf of the Palestinian people and also the, the Israeli state utilizing this fake, fictitious thing called international law. So we'll get into all of that. But let's start with this. Here's what I tweeted. Rights, and this was in response to um, one of Laura Loomer's tweets. She's been a, a, just a gem. Uh, I really appreciate her. And being able to follow her. And you can see a, like a, just an absolute spiraling Zionist who wants blood. And it's really, she's, she's very indicative of like a wider population of Zionists. Not all of which are Jews, many of which are Christian Zionists. <coughs> so, she tweeted... Um, in response to something Stu Peters said, I don't even know who Stu Peters is. She said, it's clear that Stu Peters doesn't understand what Zionism is. It's the belief that Israel has a right to exist. Okay, so this is a lie already. That's not what Zionism is. It's not the belief that Israel has a right to exist. Okay, it's, it's, and we can get a, a def, let's finish this and we can get a true definition of what Zionism is. But she's such a liar but Jews don't view lies the same way Christians do, where Christians put truth as an ideal and something to seek and pursue. Jews view truth as being less important than their ultimate aim of Israeli dominance and uh, Israeli dominion over Jerusalem and, and uh, the, that region uh, that surrounds it. So they view lies as being legitimate and necessary means to um, continue their dominance of that region. They don't view lies as being inherently wrong or going against any of their laws. It's quite the opposite. They view them as being useful tools to achieve their ends. So... And, you know, many Christians are averse to this, and this is one of the reasons why so many Christians are snapping out of all of this um, Jewish propaganda and narrative spinning. Um, so let's continue. And that's like just in the second sentence. And this is why I almost feel bad for Jews, and I don't like, I'm not so mad anymore because it literally seems like they can't not lie. It seems like they're incapable of not lying. Like they have to lie. As though it's necessary. And I was one, so I know what I'm talking about here. Okay, that is, then she says, that is what Zionism is. To be a Zionist means be you believe Israel has a right to exist. I am a Zionist. Donald Trump is a Zionist. This is ridiculous propaganda. It's funny because it is ridiculous propaganda, but what she's saying, she's, she's referring to what the other person said, but what she's saying is ridiculous propaganda. So, this is what I responded with. Rights are bestowed upon individuals, not nation states. No nation state has a right to exist. If it has the capacity to maintain its sovereignty, then it can exist. If it doesn't have the capacity to maintain its sovereignty, it is conquered. This is just reality. Obviously, what I said is true. 
Okay, it's not really like that can't be debated. And it's just having a basic understanding. And a lot of people, for example, have never even heard the word sovereignty before. But these are basic things that you learn when you're learning about like when you're even even in college, which like a lot of what you have to do is shake off what you learned in college if you want to have a true understanding of how the world works, because, you know, colleges tend to be cesspools of propaganda. But when you're just talking about basics and like what words mean, they they do an okay job. I mean, some of my classes were actually pretty decent because when I was at school, I was studying political science with the focus on uh, geopolitics. And so you learn what sovereignty is and sovereignty is simply your ability to enforce your will within a territory okay so it's just related to power that's all it is so you can't be a sovereignty if you can't exert your will if a, if a government or whatever a ruler in this i mean we'll speak in the modern sense so if the american government for the american government to be the sovereignty to be the sovereign of America, the territory of America, it has to be able to exert its will and enforce its laws. So is it able to do this? Yes. Is it able to protect its borders? Yes. And again, it's like some people might say like they don't enforce the law and they don't patrol the border, but that's by choice. If the U.S., I mean, you know, that's like the subversive elements of our society, a lot of which are Jewish, if we're being honest. But who knows who's controlling the Jews, so we don't have to put it all on them. But, you know, you, you see them, uh, their fingerprints all over it. But if um, <coughs> the fact remains that the U.S. is capable of doing this, the U.S. government is the sovereign entity. Okay, because they can create laws and enforce those laws Inter like internally within the nation. So they are sovereign. Israel is sovereign because within the borders of Israel, they can maintain their control and their power. They are the powerful entity of that region. And so they can make laws and enforce them. And they don't, I mean, obviously they have to worry about external threats, but they're also able to neutralize external threats and maintain their ability to be a sovereignty and not be conquered. That's not a right. You know, no one has a right. No nation has a right. Because that's just not how it works. If you want to, like, you have to have power to enforce your ability to exist. It's not a right. Okay? Does that make sense? Like, if all of a sudden, let's say the U.S. withdrew full support of Israel and Iran and Lebanon and Egypt and Saudi Arabia decide to all join forces and start just bombing Israel to the point that Israel has to either perish or surrender and make concessions and 
give more um, autonomy to the Palestinian authorities, they would no longer be the sovereign of, of that territory. They may have to make territorial concessions and give up land, and then maybe they can maintain sovereignty within the land that they still retain, okay? But then when you look at Hamas, for example, in the Gaza Strip, this is not a sovereign power. And one of the easy ways to see that, that was a sip of coffee, is that Hamas and the Palestinian people in Gaza don't have control over their resources. Those resources are supplied by Israel, such as water, and, um, you know, like their ability to access supply chains to get things like food. It's, Israel is able to cut off their supply of water. They're able to cut off their supply of electricity. And if need be, they're able to blockade and, and uh, prevent the Palestinian people in that region from having access to f food imports. Okay. So you couldn't make an argument that Hamas is the sovereign of that region. Israel is more so the sovereign, but not entirely because they don't have an active presence on the ground to the extent that they can enforce law in that territory. So that's where you'd call it an occupation. That would be a better example. It's like Hamas is not the sovereign in Gaza, but they're under occupation because Israel has access and ability to cut off the Palestinian access to resources, okay? Oh, I'm going to sneeze. I realize I'm a little slow today because I got, I'm like brain fogged out, you know, but I felt like I should talk about it anyway. So, let's see. I think I could, we could pivot to international law from here. But let me just drive that point home. Like, there's no such thing as a nation having a right to exist. It, that's not a thing. A nation has to produce its means to exist. A nation state. This happens all throughout history. That is... The United States didn't have a right to exist. That's why they had to go to war with their former sovereign. Britain had sovereignty over the British colonies in America. You understand? They had to fight a war to um, gain autonomy over the territory. And by... Winning that war, they became the sovereign, the American government, rather than the British government. And the British government was definitely the sovereign, even though they were an ocean away, because they had boots on the ground enforcing their laws. That's what led to the conflict in the first place, because a lot of Americans didn't agree with the laws that were being passed. And they didn't view the British government as being the legitimate sovereign of the territory. Okay, so, you know, Americans had to fight and die to 
become the sovereignty of, of their own territory. But they weren't for a long period of time. This happens everywhere, dude. This is just how it is. That's how it works. And the Americans, you know, I mean, it's just like a silly way to look at things. You can't just be like, no, we deserve to live here. Like, that's obviously not an argument. It's stupid. I mean, even the Israeli government knows that that's not true. But a lot of people will just use this as like a talking point. Israel has a right to exist. No, it doesn't. But I'm not saying that as like Israel should should perish. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it doesn't have a right to exist. It exists because it enforces its will to exist. Through force. It uses force to exist. The same way that any nation state exists. It has to use force to exist or other interests surrounding it, especially if it has resources, will just conquer it. It's simple. Okay? Sip of water. Okay, so now I can play this clip of, uh, just listen, there's a former Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett. Um, Listen to him. I mean, nearly three and a half thousand Gazans, a great number of those women and children. You say you're trying to target Hamas, but at this point, surely a ceasefire could be the best route forward. That's what the United Nations says. Try to take a step back, look at the situation and respond with clarity and calculation rather than perhaps with emotion. Uh, I'd like to... It's what you said. You said Israel is responsible for the deaths of 3,500 Gazans. Israel is responsible? Are you sure? Well, Israeli airstrikes have killed three. The numbers we have seen, three and a half thousand Gazans have been killed. No, 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 but you said they were responsible. There's a big difference. Well... If you, yes, if, you bomb, if you bomb areas where there are civilians, that means that Israel is responsible, surely? No, no. Uh, those who are responsible are Hamas, who target and shoot rockets from their those very locations. Israel is not responsible for the death of one Palestinian. Yes, when we fight Hamas, there are there is uh, uh, damage, and uh, including collateral damage, but that is the responsibility of Hamas. Not of Israel. I think you need to rethink your rhetoric. Was America responsible for deaths of Germans during World War II? No. It it was... Another lie. We'll continue, but that's obviously a lie. I mean, Britain was more responsible. You know, if you look at, like, the bombing of Dresden, for example, was, like, primarily a British mission. And then if you look at a lot of the blockades, same with World War I, that was more the responsibility of Britain than the United States, but certainly the United States contributed. Um, but again, it's just like a lie. They, but he has to bring up the Nazis. He, he, Like, again, I'm starting to view these things as more so like, almost genetic, almost genetic, because I was able to snap out of it. But I think because I was younger, I was still in my mid-20s when I snapped out of it. And it's almost a prerequisite for any Jew to snap out of victim consciousness. They have to dig into the reality surrounding world war ii and they have to break you know the jewish holocaust narrative 
that's kind of a prerequisite and like it's very very difficult for any Jew to do that so when I hear him saying things like this it's hard for me to discern whether he's lying on purpose or by accident Nazi Germany that was responsible yes America and the allies sometimes there were citizens and uh, uh, civilians that die in every war that happens but if you think well, that Israel is responsible I think you have in... a, I think let, let me please uh... oh he was gonna dude this guy's a good journalist I didn't okay before I played this for you guys I didn't listen to the whole thing but you hear before he gets cut off again by the Jew that uh, he uh He's about to bring up the firebombing of Dresden. So that's very, this guy did his, re I like this guy. I don't know what, um, I don't know what, who he works for. Let's, I'll try to find that out after. It looks like ABC News. Very interesting. This guy's good. Finish. Let me please finish. I think uh, if you uh, say that Israel is responsible, I think you have uh, an issue of moral clarity between good and bad. Israel is fighting a defensive war. And you might consider, reconsider what you just said. I, I spent the last week speaking to the victims of that terror attack on Saturday. We know full well what happened on Saturday. We're also talking about innocent lives in Gaza who are caught up in this. And when Israeli bombs land on their homes, they blame Israel for it. It's my job to put those questions to you. Now, Yeah, that guy's good. Uh, that was good journalism. You don't see it much. Especially not from ABC News, but wow, I, whoever that guy is, he's doing a he's doing a fine job. Good for him. I'm gonna take a sip of water here. So you may have been wondering when I first brought it up. Well, international law, of course, it exists. How could you say it's fictional? Well, in order for law to exist, again, this goes back to sovereignty. This is why it's a really important concept. I know I'm like using that word so much in this episode, but it's important for you to understand it and like fully what it means and the implications of it for you to understand this in a broader context. Because there's an, a distinction between internal and, and uh, international um There's a big difference between internal and international when it comes to this concept because you can actually like one of the important jobs, one of the most, there's two really important jobs of the sovereign. One is to protect the, the sovereignty of the nation. Okay? Meaning protect the borders and protect itself from uh, hostile threats. And the other is to enforce law domestically. It has to be able to make laws and then enforce them domestically within its own borders. And if you don't have a law enforcement arm of your government, then you don't have law. Because if, if a law is not being enforced, then it's not a law. I mean, like, they, don't, they no longer enforce um, weed laws, federal weed laws, you know? And, like, a lot of states have kind of gone rogue and just said it's legal here, which is, you know, I, I'm not even going to take a stance on it. I don't care, but it's not... Um, you can't even really view it as a federal law anymore because the federal government decided they're not going to enforce that law. So whether or not the law is on the books anymore doesn't matter. It still is on the books, but because it's not enforced, it's not really a law. 
A law is only truly a law if it's being enforced, okay? Now, when it comes to international situations, you can only have treaties, but you can't have laws because there's not a law enforcement wing of the world, okay? You could argue that um, America is the law enforcement arm of the world, but that's not really true. Like, America can't enforce its law wherever it wants, it can enforce its law if it's willing to put resources into that. Like when we were occupying Iraq, for example, or like, you know, portions of Iraq, we were putting in a lot of resources to be able to do that. And we weren't even really enforcing American laws, you know, so you can see how difficult it is. Like you, you literally need a, an entire police force and like a whole base of operations. You can't even just have like military outposts. It has to be more ingrained in, in the society than that. In order to actually enforce laws, you'd have to have police precincts like all over the place. And you have to be able to employ police who are going to enforce the laws that you deem necessary for that region or whatever. If you want them to be the same as American laws, I don't know, whatever you want to do. So there's not like so you can't even really make the argument that, I mean, America enforces its will on international politics more so than probably any other nation, but it's losing that slowly over time. But even still, we have a lot of clout internationally, but we're not, but there's no international sovereign because there's no world government. The only way to have international law is if there was a world government and it was able to enforce the law that that government decides upon across the world, okay? So because that's not true, there is no international law. Because again, law that cannot be enforced is not law. It ceases to be law once it's not being enforced or if it's unable to be enforced. So you can make all these rules at the Hague and stuff, but that's just, that's only as good as the country and the government's word to uphold those norms. They're more, they're norms, not even laws. Does this make sense? And that changes over time because if two governments, like if two governments in, sign a treaty in 1972, Let's say there's a treaty signed between Iran and America in 1972. Well, in 2023, those aren't even the same governments. So it's not even the same people who are involved in signing that treaty anymore. So you can't even put much weight behind that treaty. It's like very, it's a very tentative agreement and it can easily just like, they could just void it they're not really held to any count. And if they void it, who's going to get them in trouble? <clears throat> Taking a sip of water. It's like there was a treaty signed and think about at the end of World War I and leading into World War II and a lot of people talk about appeasement leading into World War II. And again, that's just a misconception and it's wrong. I'm teaching you guys a lot today. At the end of World War I, when uh, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, Germany was under 
a um, blockade by the British Navy. Okay, and so millions of Germans were starving to death. And it was under these circumstances that, um, that Germany signed this treaty. Okay, but even under common law, which has been like the norm in uh, Western governments, even with like Russia and stuff, so it's not even just limited to Western governments, this has been the case, you know, they, they've abided by common law, not really since World War I, but it was the case up until World War I. And in common law, if you're under duress, any treaty that you sign under duress is not legitimate, okay? So if someone's holding a gun to your head and they tell you to sign a contract, that's not a legitimate contract. If a country is blockading you and causing your people to starve and you sign a treaty, that's not a legitimate treaty. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is when Germany in the mid to late 30s is building back up its army and Britain and France don't want to do anything about it, it's not because they're appeasing them. It's because they were not able to do anything about it. You have to understand the way the world was after World War I. All of these countries, you know, some were in more precarious positions than others. But all of these countries had a population of particularly young to, to middle-aged men who felt completely betrayed and felt like millions of them died for nothing. You know, because it was the first war, maybe not the first, but the first like really major war that was like a classical war, but fought with modern weaponry. You know, it was like territorial disputes, whether it's like Alsace-Lorraine or, you know, the, the Serbians um, being kind of like the, the tip of the spear for Russia to exert its influence further west or whatever. But it wasn't like... It was like a classical war, the kind you'd see from like the 16, 17, 1800s, but fought with modern weaponry. And thus you had all of these stalemates and all this trench warfare and just millions of people dying um, just for territorial gains. And they felt like when all these soldiers came back and they were just devastated and it just like ruined an entire generation of men. And uh, they felt like they did it for nothing. So if you're, if you're Britain and you see the Germans building up their military capacity or you're France, you can't galvanize your young men to go to war when they haven't even attacked anyone yet. Like it wasn't even a viable option. So again, this whole like narrative, World War II has so many narratives surrounding it. And one of them is that like somehow we just appeased Germany. We just, they just let them build up their army. Well, yeah, they did because they had no choice. They literally had no choice because they would have had revolts in their own countries. I almost guarantee you that without any German aggression in World War II, if um, we'll just say France and Britain were to mobilize and start sending troops into Germany, those troops way more likely would have revolted against their own governments than to actually go to war with Germany. All right? So it's just not, it's just like, it's, it's false. 
it's a false narrative. So um, let's continue here. Let's get back on track. But then, like I said, the treaty side of that, like it was a never a legitimate treaty to begin with. Like in order for a treaty to be legitimate, it's like both sides have to have interests that pertain to the treaty that was signed to view it as even like semi-legitimate because you had, it's just a faith thing. It's like a handshake agreement between two men. That's essentially what it is. And that's the best you can get internationally. For the most part, I mean, like they could try to impose economic sanctions to keep you in check. But again, it's like you could just go through other means. That's not ironclad, set in stone, and it's not law enforcement because there's no force. There's only economic pressure that's different than actual military or police force. In order to have police force, you have to have police presence. In order to have military force, you have to be willing to utilize your military to enforce your will. If you don't have that, if you don't have that um, willingness to do so, then there is no legitimacy to your, you know, whatever you're saying geopolitically and publicly, you know, whatever you're calling for. And then, it, you know, it's almost like a game of poker at, at a certain point, too, when it comes to, like, the United States can threaten Iran to behave a certain way, but that's also contingent upon Iran's analysis of whether or not the United States is willing to enforce what they're saying, is willing to go to war over what they're demanding from Iran or whoever else. It's the same with China. Like they can say, you better stop in the South China Sea, you better stop what they're doing, what you're doing. But if China is going to stop what they're doing, it would only be because they viewed those threats as being legitimate. They continue to do what they're doing because they know there's no political will in the United States to go to war with China. So they know that they don't really have to worry about the U.S. following up on its threats. So that's like the poker element. You call their bluff or you believe them. A sip of water. But let's even assume that international law is real. Let's even assume that. And then let's look at the behavior of Hamas and let's look at the behavior of the Israeli state and see who's right and who's wrong according to international law. Well, again, it's it's more uh, gray than what you're being told, especially by, well, really by either side, Okay. So if Israel is going to claim that because they were attacked, they have a right to defend themselves, that's true. According to international law, they have a right to defend themselves. But here's the other thing. If Hamas, if the Palestinian people in Gaza are under occupation, which obviously they are, and we already established why, it's because they don't control access to the resources. Israel controls access to the resources, and at any given time, Israel can cut off access to the resources. They can cut off access to water, and they can cut off access to electricity, and they can starve and kill millions of Palestinians if they wanted to. Maybe not millions, but hundreds of thousands, okay? That's occupation. That's an occupation regime. 
Not to mention they have military superiority. Okay, so that's obviously an occupation. Well, according to international law, any people who are under occupation have the right to use violence to try to end that occupation. So, even if you're going to say that Israel has a right to defend itself, the initial attack from Hamas, which who knows how much they've inflated that. The Jews love to inflate things. Everything looks like everything looks like an uninflate like the, the Jews treat every atrocity like it's an uninflated balloon and they just blow it up, blow it up, blow it up as much as they can, but right before it pops. It's still got to be kind of believable. You know, so they say 1400, maybe that's true. I'm not sure. Uh, I take everything they say with a grain of salt. And again, it's because they've proven themselves to be liars. And then also it's because I don't think they can't not lie. That's my thesis. You know, that, that, um, that's more of a, a, an instinctual stance by me, um, especially knowing them as I do and um, having the same, the same Ashkenazi blood and a little bit of Sephardic. I have a much higher opinion. Mm, I shouldn't even say that. I'm not even going to say that. I was going to say I have a much higher opinion of Sephardic Jews than, uh, than Ashkenazi, but Sephardic are just as susceptible to the propaganda as Ashkenazis are. And I don't think that they're the same people. And it seems obvious. Look up, like Google what a Sephardic Jew looks like and Google what an Ashkenazi Jew looks like and tell me those are both from the same bloodline. Tell me those both hail from the Middle East. Sephardic, it looks pretty obvious that they do. They look Arab. And uh, Ashkenazi are European, clearly. You're telling me Ben Shapiro? You're telling me Ben Shapiro's ancestors come from Israel? Like, that's ridiculous. I, I, you know, I don't know how people could even make that claim anymore. I mean, luckily, this whole mask-off moment for the Zionists and, like, showing how much bloodlust they have and how capable they are of ethnic hatred is opening a lot of people's eyes and so a lot of these things like that would have been a really horrible and anti-semitic thing to say and jews will still claim that saying that ashkenazi jews don't hail from israel is anti-semitic but no one cares anymore so thankfully they've um they've really ruined their credibility and so you're able to say these things like look at ben shapiro is is, are his ancestors are his ancestors from the Middle East? Come on, let's be real. Okay, so um, anyway, even if we're going to take international law as being real and not fictitious, what Hamas is doing. And in that attack, they're actually justified in doing so under international law. Okay, obviously it backfires because it's not like they've built up military infrastructure to be able to pose a legitimate threat to the Israeli state. So ultimately, it's just going to backfire when they do something like this. But still, it's not illegal under international law for them to do what they did. That's just a fact. Okay, so, and again, it's like, I don't view international law as being legitimate because I actually understand geopolitics. But even if we're going to take that and let them run with that argument, it's still not 
a, a war crime. Okay? Under international law, to cut off resources, as Israel did, and I, th I think they've restored them. I don't know if that's continued because it would be kind of insane if they, con if they are continuing that, to cut off electricity and water. Um, that's a war crime. According to international law, which I don't think is real, okay? So if you're Jewish and you're listening to this and you're really mad, I'm saying I, I don't view it as legitimate. But if you're going to be the one making arguments, utilizing international law to try to bolster your argument, I'm just, gonna, I'm just telling you the truth that that's not a good route to go because actually, in this case, um, you, you've committed more war crimes. According to international law, I'm just telling you the truth. Don't get mad at me. Well, Jews get ri well. That's like it's saying. Um, if you want to anger a Christian, lie. If you want to anger a Jew, tell the truth, which is kind of a funny one, and I like it. Um, but I'm kind of I'm just fed up, and and it's just it's the lying. It really bothers me. When people just lie and then they just double down or they just ignore it. I mean, I was in like everyone forgot. It's literally been whatever. It's been like two weeks now. Everyone said there was going to be a global day of jihad. Stay out of the cities. You know, I just went to work like it was a regular day. I went and did a, an open mic, you know, after work in Manhattan. I survived, guys. I survived the international global day of jihad. Can you believe it? I'm a survivor. And the next day, I was like, you know, <coughs> sorry. When I was going on stage, I was like, hey, where's all the violence? I was like, where's the uh, global jihad? What happened? And, you know, people laugh, but anyone who was taking it seriously, they just, they don't, like, hopefully they feel stupid. I would hope that they feel stupid, but they just don't care. They just pretend it didn't happen. You know, and that like really annoys me. And it's like the 40 decapitated babies didn't happen. They'd still use it as a talking point. I swear it's been two weeks. They debunked that in 24 hours. They still use it as a talking point. They can't not lie. They have to lie. Like it's amazing, dude. And it's, it was making me mad and frustrating me, but now I actually like feel bad. I don't think they, I don't think they're capable of not lying. I think they have to lie. And then I like, I'm like, oh, because the truth is so awesome. And it like, it'll enrich your life. It's so beautiful. The truth is like, sometimes it, it hurts because you have all of these preconceived notions and, and you want to be right about things. And sometimes the truth is the opposite of what you think or how you feel. And you have to like reckon with that. And that can hurt sometimes. But always on the other side of that pain is like gratitude. And it makes you humble and it makes you smarter. And it's like a beautiful thing. And so I feel bad for them because I'm like, they can only lie. They're like in this world of lies and they don't have access to like the beauty of truth and that like how wonderful truth is. So I actually like feel bad for them. You know, I'm like not, it still bothers me because they're using it. They, they use the lies to justify their bloodlust and bloodlust is always bad.
But part of me also feels bad for them because they don't have access to this wonderful thing. And they reject it. And we could probably link that to the rejection of Christ, but we don't have to get all religious here. That was a sip of coffee. I think um, there's like a lot more to say, but like I said, I'm fucking like beat today. But I felt like I should provide you something. And this isn't, this wasn't great, but I think you, you learned some stuff. I gave you some some knowledge. I gave you some, like a deeper understanding, hopefully, of like what geopolitics is and how it works. And we, we've done this before because we went over some of these things when it came to Ukraine and Russia. But this is even a little bit more straightforward of an example. And so I felt like it was good to take advantage of this and to sort of like put things in perspective for you. Uh, so I'll come back on another day when I'm like locked in and we'll really get into it. It'll be funnier. This was more just like factual. I wasn't really trying to be funny. Um, but, but we'll get to that. And I have like a lot of bits that I've been working on and I can tell you some of them and they're pretty funny, pretty true. So we'll do that on another day. But for now, thanks for listening. I love you. Bye.